From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Joel Street. I oversee the teams that produce Mayo Clinic Radio, the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast, and all the great content seen on the Mayo Clinic News Network. The COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic has affected us all, and for the time being, we'll change the sound of our program just a bit. In an effort to deliver the information that you and your family need to know, the first half of our program will be focused on COVID-19. This could be in the interview format that you're used to hearing, highlights from Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts, or Mayo Clinic News Network coverage of the pandemic. Pandemic. The second half of the program will feature encore presentations of topics previously heard on Mayo Clinic Radio. Let's get started. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Here with us again today, we have Dr. Greg Poland, our virologist and infectious disease expert from Mayo Clinic. And today, I'm really looking forward to this, Greg, because we're going to be answering some questions from our listeners. Should be fun to, to find out what people want to know about. Yeah. Our first question is about hand sanitizer. Boy, there's been a lot in the news about this. Um, one of our listeners states that they have seen some issues with hand sanitizers that have been discussed in the news. How do you know if one is safe? What's wrong with the ones uh, that, that are out there that we're supposed to avoid? And how do we know? which ones they are. Uh, First of all, it might be worth saying that the best thing we can do for hand sanitization is washing with soap and water. The hand rubs or hand, you know, liquid hand sanitizers are a second best. They work, but they don't work well when your hands are soiled with visible dirt or have mucus on them. So it is a second best. Nonetheless, when you're out and about, you don't really have a choice. So what you want to do is you wanna select a hand sanitizer with at least 60, ideally 70% ethyl alcohol in it. You do not want a hand sanitizer that has methyl alcohol. Methyl alcohol is a toxin and should not be used. Unfortunately, what unethical producers are doing in order to meet the demand and sell their product for hand sanitizer is they're using methyl alcohol, which is very cheap. The other thing that can fool you is that it can say ethyl alcohol and rarely says more than that. You do not want a product that lists one propanol alcohol. That is also a toxin. So uh, how would the average consumer know that? You pick up your phone, you can go to the FDA website, put in the product number, and boom, it will tell you whether this is an approved or unapproved hand sanitizer. The other thing I wanna comment on is is twofold. Hand sanitizers that do not have ethyl alcohol, and they have very uh, winsome names, herbal, green, you know, things like that. Um, Those are ineffective and and should not be used. Um, Finally, why the prohibition about methyl alcohol? As I mentioned, it's a toxin. And two um, unfortunate things happen. One is that little children could use enough of it to experience some symptoms of methanol poisoning. But the other really unfortunate one, and it, it seems hard to believe, but hand sanitizer 
is not infrequently used as an alcohol ingestion substitute among alcoholics. And when that happens, that can be disastrous. I've worked enough years in emergency rooms to see what methanol poisoning can do. It can completely ruin your liver. It can cause profound CNS, uh, central nervous system side effects. So it is truly a toxin and should be avoided. Greg, do hand sanitizers ever expire? In fact, like all products, they do expire uh, over time. Generally speaking, the ethanol-based hand sanitizers have about a three-year window. And the reason for uh, why it it, it has a three-year window is that the alcohol content decreases over time. We've mentioned many times that we want a a hand rub that has 60 to 70% alcohol content. Once it falls below 60%, it begins to lose its effectiveness. So the expiration is based on that about three-year time window. I have one other question that I'd like to throw in. I have seen that um, many of the large distilleries in the United States have um, volunteered to close down their production or limit it so that they could make hand sanitizer. Can people make their own hand sanitizer in their home? And does the alcohol that they may have in their liquor cabinets have anything to do with it? (laughs) Well, again, you know, we don't want to conflate drinking alcohol with hand sanitizer. And we've seen it here at Mayo Clinic of uh, people volunteering, companies volunteering to provide us with some of the ingredients that you need for a safe and effective hand sanitizer. And, and as I say, that's, that's to be commended. Um, I think the, the issue involves the idea that how, could you make your own? And you can go on the internet, FDA and others do have a recipe, WHO, in fact, has a recipe for how to make your own uh, hand sanitizer with ethyl alcohol, the kind that would be in rubbing alcohol that you can buy, and you can safely make your own because it, it has been a problem, let's face it, to, to buy a hand sanitizer. And unfortunately, a number of producers have you know, tripled and quadrupled the, the price of it. Um, so definitely, uh, you can do that. Again, far better is wash your hands with soap and water. So when the liquor companies are, are making hand sanitizer, they're changing the type of alcohol that they use to produce it? Well, no, they're actually using a, a ethanol, that, which is appropriate. They are not using methyl alcohol. Greg, the next listener would like to know about plastic face shields. We were all told that we should be wearing masks and many communities and states have instituted some uh, regulation around wearing masks. And there are people who are wearing the plastic face shields along with masks, but also people who are just wearing the plastic face shield themselves, thinking that that's protective. Is just wearing the face shield acceptable or does one need to pair it with a mask? The face shield alone is inadequate compared to the face shield plus mass. So at Mayo Clinic, as you know, we are wearing, when we're with patients, we're wearing a mask and a face shield or some kind of eye protection. The problem with a face shield, and we're talking about it as if it's one entity, I've seen many different types, and, and therein lies a problem. But the problem with a face shield is that you still have air. I mean, you're breathing in. That air has to come from around or underneath the face shield. 
Now, its value is in reducing exposure to the larger droplets. Somebody coughs or sneezes, you actually have a physical barrier for the large droplets, and you have your mask underneath for the smaller and the aerosolized droplets. Um, if there was somebody who, for some valid reason, could not wear a mask, a face shield would be better than nothing, for example. But is a face shield alone of the same efficacy as a face mask? The data does not support that. CDC does not recommend that. So I would say no at this point. That's very helpful. And this, this listener had indicated that their mother had an issue with asthma and was having difficulty wearing a face mask or was exempt uh. from doing so. And there are a few uh, individuals who have um, disorders where they are, cannot wear a face mask. But in that case, one of the face shields that covers the mouth. Yeah. Um, would and be and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised, Helena, if in the evolution of face shields that we get to a point, for example, where we have a face shield that goes to the ears and then goes below the chin with a cloth that would in essence act as a kind of mask so that even though air is being breathed through, it would nonetheless filter in some, in some way that. There are other difficulties associated with it. Some people get headaches. The thing I don't like about it, and, and I wear it, is it is not an optic, you know, it's a very curved piece of plastic usually, and it's not optically clear. It distorts, it's like having spectacles on where the lenses aren't quite right and it distorts your vision a little bit. And, you know, for, for you and I in the medical setting, having clear vision is important. <laughs> There's a lot of ingenuity out there um, associated with COVID, and I hear some. Um things waiting to be developed there when you describe types of face shields and masks. It's yeah. really interesting to see what we see in the next number of months. Yeah. I, you know, and as I say, I think we could probably get there, but the current iteration of face shields right now, I think are not sufficient, but we may get there. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. All right, Greg, the next uh, listener wants to know if someone is exposed to COVID and they know that they have been, how long do they need to self-isolate? What if they are living with other people? How do they uh, protect those individuals? And they're, they're, the answer is a little bit complicated because as we've learned more, the science has changed and therefore the recommendations have been updated to reflect that. So I'll try to break it down in to kind of three clear categories. Number one, if you've been exposed to somebody with COVID, you need to self-quarantine for 14 days after your last exposure. So if you had exposure to somebody, you went into quarantine and then got exposed again, you start the clock over, 14 days. One of the things that's changed is, well, what about travel, particularly international travel? the CDC dropped the requirement for 14 days of quarantine. So, and then just refers you to local state or, you know, community rules while respecting masking, physical distancing, et cetera. Now, this is the tougher one in some ways. After you have um, recovered from COVID, okay, so you've had COVID 
and uh, you are, you, it's now been 10 days or more since your symptoms have appeared, you have no fever, and those uh, symptoms are improving. You don't have to quarantine after that 10-day time period. So it gets a little confusing for people. No quarantine after travel, 14 days of quarantine after exposure to somebody who's had it, and then 10 days of quarantine if you develop symptoms of COVID. Now, the tougher part that you asked is, what happens if you're in a household, and many people are, where they might not be able to um, uh, physically distance very well or don't have separate bedrooms? That's a tougher spot because you basically have to be in quarantine until that person has recovered from the acute symptoms. And you don't know when in that 10 plus day window that you might have gotten infected. So it's 14 days after that time point. And again, respecting the wearing of masks, the physical distancing, um, et cetera. And then certainly getting tested if you develop symptoms. Yeah. Our next door neighbors actually were bringing their daughter to college. It noted that she's going to need to quarantine in a hotel for 14 days mm-hmm. after arriving uh, to to the um, state where she's going to college. And I thought that was uh, really interesting before she can move into an apartment. Yeah. A number of schools are doing that. And, and of course, we understand why. You know, if you think of it, a dormitory is uh, something like a static cruise ship, if you will. <laughs> All right, on to our next question. There's been a lot in the, the news about flu season already because of the similarity in symptoms uh, with COVID, I suppose. And also because here we have two viral illnesses that um, will maybe working in conjunction with one another. This listener saw a news story about the Southern Hemisphere, where they have some flu cases already, saying that there were fewer cases uh, this year. Why might that be? This is really a fascinating observation. Uh, As you know, we try to get people to take flu vaccine every year. What we have not done is what you tend to see in some Asian cultures, which is to wear a mask every flu season in order to decrease transmission. And that's exactly what's happened in the Southern Hemisphere. They're just coming out of their winter. Remember that COVID started in the U.S. toward the end of our winter, so we didn't get a chance to see much uh, effect from masks. But in the Southern Hemisphere, they've been pretty good about wearing masks. And the fascinating observation is that influenza cases have been a fraction of what is normally seen down there. So it speaks to the efficacy of masking with respiratory viruses, and it speaks to a powerful tool in terms of preventing respiratory infections during winter. So, you know, the the recommendation this year will be get your flu vaccine. CDC recommends getting it no later than the end of October and wearing a mask during uh, the season when we see influenza viruses. By the way, we should, we should mention that during the wintertime, we see seasonal coronaviruses, parainfluenza, rhinoviruses, pertussis. We see in areas where immunization rates are low, pneumococcal disease, measles, mumps, rubella. We have the opportunity to substantially decrease the burden of disease. When you look last year in in the U.S., and I I, I looked up the statistics uh, so that we would have them, and and remember for flu, they're doing an estimate. So they actually measure what they can in 121 cities, 
and then they extrapolate from that. So you'll hear this in the, in the estimates I'm giving you. So there were between 39 and 56 million illnesses, between 410 and 740,000 hospitalizations, between 24,000 and 62,000 deaths, and 169 of those deaths, unfortunately, were in children. So, you know, we see influenza, and if we take that upper limit from last year of 60,000 deaths, you know, we're almost at 180,000 deaths in the U.S. from coronavirus. So, you know, you start adding these together and you're looking at coronavirus and you're saying, you know what, we're at about a point where one out of every 2,100, 2,200 Americans who was alive in December have now died from COVID-19. And imagine how much of that we could prevent by the simple wearing of a mask. That's really sobering and very interesting about the masking affecting the rates of influenza. I hadn't thought of that. Of course, um, masks aren't uh, limited to COVID-19, right. but um, I just hadn't thought of us making an impact that way. It's, yeah. Thanks so much, Greg. Indeed. Do you have anything further that you'd like to share with us today? Well, I, I think, you know, again, in the way of, of hopefulness, there are now um, six vaccines that are in phase three trials. So, this really is moving ahead very rapidly. Um, uh, one company had decided that they were going to develop four vaccines simultaneously. They've now down-selected to two of those. And in those two, they developed neutralizing antibodies uh, about fourfold higher than what happens in convalescent serum. And even within elderly people, which has been a concern because they tend not to respond as well as younger people, twofold higher. I I think what uh, our listeners certainly want to do is stay tuned. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking more and more about vaccine development efforts. And it will be important because it will be a little confusing. There'll be one vaccine after another that will be released and people will naturally have questions about well, what's the better one for me? Or what's the right timing for me to take this vaccine? So, you know, I I think the message is going to be wear your mask, get your influenza vaccine, get updated on your pneumococcal vaccine. I just did two weeks ago. And then your other vaccines like shingles and pertussis. And then when we get coronavirus vaccine, uh, getting in line for that when it's available. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Greg Poland, virologist and infectious disease expert, for being with us again today and for answering some listener questions. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. Healthcare workers have been on the front lines fighting COVID-19 now for over six months. COVID-19 has presented extraordinary challenges in treating patients and helping families cope. And those challenges are taking a toll on healthcare workers themselves. Here today to discuss this with us is the chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, Dr. Ann Sen. In the beginning, we were hearing so much about healthcare workers, and it seems like this is dragging out so long now that it's almost becoming a chronic, <laughs> a chronic state for us. And so it's great to hear an update from you today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, you know, um, obviously, um, it's, it's been very surreal for all of us, um, you know, not just here in Arizona, um, 
in the nation around the world. As, as you all very well know that uh, the surge was somewhat muted initially um, in the first few months of the pandemic in Arizona. Uh, it wasn't, um, you know, a zero by any means because we were still getting a lot of patients being transferred uh, from our northern Arizona sites. But in the last couple of months, we saw that very significant surge of patients coming to our hospital with a lot of um, challenges uh, and learning every day, trying to provide the best care for our patients. Well, describe for our uh, listeners a little bit about what your involvement in care and um, management of COVID-19 is. The first thing we did was aggressively look at um, what we could do for engineering modifications in the ICU, uh, negative pressure pods, cohorting patients, how we could have nurse sentries to restrict the ingress and ingress of um, you know, staff into those cohorted areas, developing cleaning checklists and so on. We also had to look at surge space because we are only a 30-bed ICU in a 300-bed hospital. And so what were the outlying areas that we could utilize, our pre-op and peri-op spaces, interventional areas and all that. And we created a seven-level system of surge from green to black in collaboration with our anesthesia colleagues, our surgical procedural committee leadership, and our Arizona Command Center. But we had to work on our systems and workflows. A lot of things had to change, including code blue responses. And I chaired the resuscitation subcommittee, which is the uh, Arizona MERS. And we had to ensure that we took great care of our staff at the same time, keep up with our excellent metrics, focusing on the clinical management of these patients. If you remember in the early stages of this pandemic, there was so much literature that was being published and really didn't know what worked for our patients. So I was... Uh, um, asked to co-chair the medical advisory group of the hikes in Arizona with our ID colleagues and many other stakeholders. We created a clinical practice guideline to enable the frontline um, clinical providers to be able to take great care of our patients. But it needed education. It needed training of non-critical care providers, um, which we did with our simulation center. Also worked on standing up clinical trials uh, with our Arizona research task force in collaboration with the enterprise task force, because that was the only way we could learn in this very complex disease, what was effective and what wasn't. There's so many other areas that I was involved in, including talking about disaster triage and the scarce allocation of resources, something that I absolutely hoped we would never have to come to because those choices are tough, whatever policies and guidelines we come with, uh, but it needed to be done. We needed to have a plan and we did. And then finally, um, jumping into take care of patients day in and day out in the ICU uh, with our team embedded in the trenches, something that I um, was involved in, um, you know, um, as a frontline care provider. That's an incredible amount of effort that it has taken just to prepare. And that doesn't even really encompass all of the, the management, the actual management of patients. Describe for us what your typical day has been like. So a typical day, you know, started early, lots of meetings. You know, this was a problem that, um, you know, we knew required efforts from uh, a lot of different stakeholders and committees that we have at Mayo Clinic, from the Arizona High Hospital Incident Command System to IPAC to leadership updates and space planning meetings uh, with our command center. You know, we wanted to ensure that everybody was on the same page and the situation was always very dynamic and evolving. It wasn't that we could have a template and run with it, um, what we did in March did not work when we moved to May and June. So uh, some of those discussions had to be um, continued, um, you know, pretty frequently to get a better idea um, of uh, what would be successful here. 
So it was balancing these multiple meetings, doing a clinical shift on the unit, looking out uh, for colleagues, especially ensuring that some of their questions were addressed appropriately. And in many ways, uh, being a cheerleader for our staff, um, you know, was what a typical day was like. Yeah, you mentioned that about cheering colleagues. What efforts have you making and how do you support colleagues? And then can you tell us a little bit about who are the members of the team that you work with? One of the things I decided early on is to um, embed myself in the unit, and I found myself a touchdown space. As you know, office space is so hard uh, with um, all the growth and plans that are taking place here in Arizona. So I wanted to be available for the team at all times. Fancied myself as a battalion commander in the trenches with the troops, and I wanted to be there um, close to ground zero. Also, not just being present, but open lines of communication was very dynamic and evolving, as I mentioned, multiple meetings that took place, sometimes daily, sometimes on a weekly basis. I also ensured that I provided email updates to my team and words and quotes of encouragement. And one of my favorite quotes has been that history has brought us together in these turbulent times. Let's make the best of it and support each other and make history. I reached out to all my nurses and everyone who was part of our ICU team, physical therapists, pharmacists, but important was to validate their fears and concerns, not that we had a solution for every single thing that we encountered. None of us have lived through a pandemic or had an experience, and it was so important to be very clear about it that um, we were in this together. And finally, going into rooms uh, with our nurses and our therapists and everybody else as part of the team, spending time with patients, holding patients' hands, that was important for our colleagues to recognize that, you know, we're not just doing this, you know, by ourselves. We are there uh, very much together through the whole patient experience uh, when they came through to the hospital, admitted to the ICU and their ongoing care. I wanted to be their cheerleader. Also, we started a process in the ICU during our morning huddle, which we called our ICU moment of silence. And we've started that in the past few weeks as um, we started having deaths of some of our very long-term patients, and we've established uh, close relationships with a lot of the family members. We wanted to honor uh, the departed souls as well as their family members, also the team who took care of them. And um, one of the things that has particularly struck me about uh, this pandemic is the changes that we've had to make to how family members uh, participate in a patient's care. You know, I remember when I was a child, there were hours you, people could go in and, and had to leave and children were not allowed in certain parts of the hospital. And now we've sort of understood that people need their families to help them get well. How are patients doing with this limit on having family members in and how do you and your staff um, help them accommodate and uh, manage in spite of that? I've always felt that families and patients are part of the care team. And this is something we do at Mayo Clinic and we've done it for a long time. Um, you know, we have had families in rounds and not to have anybody and to have that conversation by phone. Um, it, it has been so difficult and different. Uh, and I'm a people's person. I like to sit down and connect with them and hold people's hands and patients' hands. So different when you're having those very difficult conversations by phone. So we've been trying to do the best we can, you know, providing Zoom um, updates very quickly into the process. We ensured that all family members were able to download Zoom, sometimes difficult because of connectivity, especially uh, for family members who were in the uh, Navajo Nation, Northern Arizona areas. But we tried to do our best so that they could visually look at their um, loved one and be able to connect with them. We, we did uh, what we could to provide daily updates. We assigned one person the team um, after rounds to be able to give them the clinical picture. Our social work team, our care management team did fantastic in providing them additional um, resources and opportunities. And when we had a change of the visitation policy, it really made a huge difference because 
We could then have you know, family members um, be at the bedside of some of our patients, obviously not the COVID ones. And then the change towards ensuring end-of-life care, we um, enabled family members to be there was a big uh, difference because uh, we wanted to ensure that nobody died alone. I hesitate to ask this question because I'm not sure that it's answerable, but what has been uh, the most difficult for you? I think a lot of things have been challenging, but none uh, so much as um, you know, seeing the fear in patients' eyes. They got increasingly hypoxic, proceeded towards uh, requiring intubation. There was a term that was being popularized in social media, the happy hypoxics. I would never say I saw them happy. It was unhappy hypoxics. They were um, scared, fearful. They were patients who did not have medical issues. And slowly as um, their breath got worse and they struggled and we came to their bedside, the fear in their eyes when you mentioned about intubation, um, knowing that we could be the last person they're speaking to was the most difficult part of my experience, I would say. When those patients, some of them who didn't make it, um, you know, it's almost like having nightmares because um, we wanted to ensure that we provide them with hope. We just couldn't, despite our best efforts. We learned how to save them, but we didn't learn how to get them and nurse them back to health, you know, developing terminal irreversible lung injury and things like that, and their families deciding on comfort care. Um, I think that's been the biggest struggle that probably I've had during this experience. What has been most surprising? It's it's been very surprising that uh, we are very fragile. Our systems got disrupted so quick and fast. Uh, You know, we always have been living um, in the knowledge that, you know, we have great people and uh, great uh, resources, but in a matter of a few weeks, um, we were fast running out of medications or PPEs and things like that. It was uh, very surprising in many ways, despite having had um, some background experience in disaster um, medicine and having seen it in the developing part of the world. But in a good way, the surprising part was how our community and our teams rallied together and the stripe that brought out the best in teams and collaborated and brought innovation to a new level. That was, that was really um, very heartwarming throughout this whole process of dealing with the pandemic. Mayo Clinic Radio returns right after this. You have an incredible amount of responsibility in your job and never more so than now during the, this pandemic. What have you found to be most rewarding? I think the most rewarding is always somebody who survived this pandemic. We saved a lot of lives. We had about 400 odd patients who came to our hospital and a unadjusted mortality of five, six percent, I think, um, has been um, has been good for us in many ways to see that we've done well um, to uh, take great care of our patients. Uh, but I can um, relate to one particular example, uh, if I may share, uh, was one of our patients who, um, you know, we were called in the early months of the pandemic um, in March, actually, Uh, from a different local hospital, a young guy who had severe COVID ARDS and um, they couldn't oxygen and ventilate him on a ventilator and they asked for um, ECMO support. And we have an ECMO transport team, which is, um, you know, the cardiac surgeon, the intensivist, perfusion, nursing, and we go and cannulate patients and bring them back to Mayo Clinic. And um, we've done this for many years, but we were so nervous and scared because we were going to a different hospital. We had to wear PPEs. We had to maintain our workflow and ensure that we didn't expose anybody. Getting to that hospital, it was a pediatric ICU room that had been converted to an adult ICU, and narrow space and getting our equipment in the room with sweat pouring down inside our cappers, 
the summer heat out there. Um, it was it was challenging and tricky, and we brought the patient back. He was incredibly sick and uh, was on ECMO for a couple of weeks in the hospital for five weeks. And then when he got ready to be discharged from the hospital, when we could get almost everybody in Arizona hospital come by to send him off and give him a warm farewell with all the applause for the patient and the patient doing his high fives, I think nothing replaces that experience. That is probably the most rewarding of it all. In the news, we've all heard so much about ventilators and know that they're used to help people breathe when they have this virus. But for our lay audience, can you tell us just briefly, what, what is ECMO and how is that different than a ventilator? Sure. So ECMO, um, it's an acronym for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And all it means, as I explained to people, is when the ventilators fail, you have to do something to oxygenate, give people oxygen in their blood and remove carbon dioxide. And we do it through the bloodstream. So when we realized that the lungs cannot exchange gas efficiently, we put big cannulas, almost like hose pipes, uh, that then go to a pump and a device called an oxygenator that exchanges this gas, infuses fresh oxygen into the blood and removes carbon dioxide. And that is how um, the cells and tissues or the organ systems in the body can survive because now the um, device that is sitting outside at the foot of the bed is able to take over the function of the lung. So it's a supportive technology that gives you time. It is not a cure. The lungs have to heal by themselves to be able to um, return back to normal life because we don't have, um, as of now, artificial lung devices that people can you know, walk around with or go home with. So the body has to heal and the lungs have to heal naturally while the supportive technology called ECMO sustains lives. If you were to ask your team, what do you think they would say has been uh, the most important thing uh, to them or, or for their work during the pandemic? I think the most important uh, part that our team feels has been a great teamwork, that we have been able to look out for each other, check on each other, maintain their safety, and also keeping the practice running, taking care of the COVID patients, the really sick COVID patients, but that didn't stop us from caring for the non-COVID patients who needed care those in organ failure who needed a transplant, those with cancer who needed the chemotherapy and had complications, sepsis and things like that. We wanted to ensure that we were present and able to care for all of them. We had to work hard and we had to make a lot of modifications, but we were there and it was important for us uh, to continue to evolve our practice. But above all, the science of this disease, I don't think we have hit medical books the way uh, we have in trying to understand this very multi-faceted complex disease, trying to understand pathophysiology, trying to work with colleagues in pathology and hematology and infectious diseases and all that to get to know what could we do to kind of stop this disease and get patients better. It's been the most important aspect of what we have done in the last few months. We can see that your job is grueling, that the days are long, and that the responsibility is high. What has kept you going in the face of looking ahead and not knowing how long this is going to go on or exactly where, where we are going with this? You know, I think a sense of service and responsibility that is important for me that has kept me going. The pride of being at Mayo Clinic, um, our values and our rich ties that we talk about, respect, integrity, compassion, healing, teamwork, innovation, excellence, and stewardship. We needed oodles of all of these to be able to sustain our response to this pandemic. Also, my team's faith in me and my family's belief in me. 
my parents and sister who haven't seen for the past seven months, except virtually, our belief in my people, that we knew that together we could conquer. In times like these, I often remember Khalil Gibran's quote, out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most mar- massive characters are seared with scars. I think those things, those quotes, helped me know that we would fight this and we would emerge. Is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners that you have learned during this pandemic that you will take with you uh, beyond into your uh, work after someday maybe this uh, ends? Uh, We have learned so much and we're learning every single day. I could probably write a book, you know, in terms of what we have, um, you know, encountered and experienced. But one of the most singular lessons from this is that we cannot take things for granted anymore. We have to be perennially prepared for disasters and pandemics. And we need to look at our, re, um, our preventive strategies. Uh, what could we do to um, innovate and up the ante and research into engineering of hospitals, PPEs? How could we keep our staff safe so that they don't feel vulnerable? We also learned that um, diseases like COVID-19 are multi-system and very complex and need a multi-pronged approach. How could we potentially stand up clinical trials with more agility and adroitness? We also learned about healthcare disparities and um, especially um, what we recognize is our friends and colleagues in the Navajo Nation who were very underserved and we need more investment in public health. How could Mayo Clinic and other institutions reach out to them in a better way? But also we learned that old-fashioned critical care does save lives. The search for the magic bullet needs to continue but a lot of lives can be saved by those little big things that we do. And in many ways, it was a defining moment for our specialty. But not just critical care, I think House of Medicine came together, which was so endearing and heartwarming to see, where we joined hands to take on the scourge of this disease. We need to do more of this. We also saw how telemedicine came of age and you know, we made giant strides. And the future is the synergy between this digital age and supreme bedside care. We learned that innovation can be done with rapid cycle improvement. We don't have to take forever to bring an innovation to healthcare, which is a crying need as reflected in this pandemic. And I think finally, I would say we learned that we live in a very fragile world where threats of disasters and pandemics loom like the sword of Democles overhead. You know, we live in the midst of alarms, anxiety, but clouds our future. But we have been survivors. And as the world continues to smolder and burn, I feel that um, the challenges before us are like never before. And it serves as a point and reminder of what we need to do because the footprints on the sands of time left by the faceless victims of this pandemic really will guide us in our endeavors to advance the science of disaster medicine, pandemic preparedness, critical care, infectious diseases, and certainly iron out the seams in our international and national collaborative work and light the candle of peace in our global village. And with pride, I learned that here at Mayo Clinic, we will continue to serve the best interest of our patients and the best interest of humanity. It's been amazing to be part of this great institution in these very difficult times. Our thanks today to the Chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona, Dr. A.N. Sen, for being with us. We also want to thank all of the healthcare workers who are on the front lines caring for patients during the COVID pandemic. And thanks to you too for listening today. We wish you a good day. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, we thank you for listening.